0: This is Mark Marshall with Anatomy of Tone. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss the Effectro Delta Trem, as well as a weird phenomenon that happens on stage sometimes when the bass frequencies trick your ears uh, to thinking that you're hearing a pitch that you're not. We're also going to discuss uh, whiteboard techniques for composition and uh, automating the mix control on a reverb unit while using a Mellotron, but this technique will also work with guitars, or synths, or vocals, or drums. And All right. Well, let's get started. Let's first start talking about this low frequency weirdness experience I had on a gig recently. So it was a gig with some friends um, that I got called to do and uh, I was on stage and they were calling out a lot of songs that I didn't know. And this isn't uncommon for some of these pickup gigs, uh, which is fine. We've gotten used to being able to learn songs in the moment but there's a couple of things that i need in order to effectively be able to play along with a song i don't know and and one of the biggest anchors that i use uh, is the bass guitar so this is the case if i'm playing piano or, or guitar that hearing the the bass player play the root note is fundamental to me to at least finding my way to the chord and then figuring out if it's major or minor so if i can't hear the bass player and if I'm playing guitar and I can't hear the keyboard player, left hand, uh, it's it makes for a much trickier gig. So this particular gig we're doing at this venue, I don't know what was happening this particular week, I've played this venue before, but this particular week, the low end was just so weird. I don't know if the band, maybe it was just a little louder this week but there was like a bass trap in the corner where I was. And when the bassist was hitting a low note, uh, it was sounded a half step off. I've had this happen only a couple of times in my career, and each time it's been weird and taken me a little while to, to realize what was happening. Uh, because sometimes it'd be, uh, like I'd realize, I'd be looking at things harmonically and I'd be like, well, okay, this, this should be an E note here if I'm thinking of like western music theory or or pop music right what would make sense harmonically why am I hearing an F this doesn't make sense for the key signature right and eventually I kind of pieced it together like oh wait a second I'm hearing things a half step off Uh, it's um, hard to control and and fix when that's happening Uh, one of the only things I think that could really fix it is if the bass comes down a lot and I don't really feel like the bass player was playing obnoxiously loud or anything it had more to do with just the acoustics in in the room and so playing quieter would have solved it because then the acoustics of the room would have come less into play but I think that just wasn't going to happen it was kind of like a rock band situation and so uh so I think we were just parked at that volume so it took me a long time to adjust to that and maybe think about different ways to figure out the the uh, keys of the song that we're in. I asked for more keyboards in the monitor, which is monitors on gigs, as everybody knows, is, is always a challenging uh, uh, experience uh, trying to get anything in them that you could hear well enough. But, you know, it's sometimes you just have to find your way through those gigs when that's happening. Also, oddly enough, short-scale basses sometimes trick my ears out. Now, it depends if I'm using flat-wound strings or round-wounds, but uh, sometimes... I think maybe it just has to do with the scale length, but I will hear the strings that the pitches be or the intonation to me sounds a little off on a short scale bass as opposed to a regular scale bass. Not all the time. I actually have to dig a little deeper to figure out what it is I'm hearing with the short scale basses. But on this particular gig, the bassist was also using a short scale bass. I feel like the short scale bass mixed with the subs and the position made it kind of difficult to be on the fly... And figure songs out now. It's easier to deal with those situations when you're playing songs that you know because you could just put the horse blinders on and be like, "No, I know this is an F chord here. I know this is a G chord here." Uh, but when you're figuring things out in the moment and and trying to learn a song as you're playing it, it presents uh, a lot more challenges. So I'd be curious to hear if anybody else has experienced this phenomenon. I haven't been told there's a name for it, but I actually haven't found what the name of it is. But um, it's uh, it's definitely uh, unnerving for a little while until you uh, you get your balance. Every guitarist, at some point in their career, tends to learn scales. Some guitarists learn them very early on, and they tend to be more in the form of like exercises. Finger exercises, right? There's a lot of times, a lot of teachers and, and um, education, in some, at least the rock realms, it tends to focus on more the physical aspect of playing, I feel, uh, and not that that's not important. I think, look, being able to have dexterity on the instrument and flexibility is really important. but. What's lacking, I think, is the uh, combined focus on uh, what the scales mean and how to use them. Because what I've noticed with a lot of guitar students or keyboard students, especially guitar students for whatever reason, uh, pianists tend to be a little more grounded in music theory for some reason, but um, a lot of guitarists come to me and um, they, they feel like they can't make music with scales. And this makes sense because They've sort of learned these positions on the guitar as a physical exercises and they don't really have a concept of any priority of notes or note matching, in other words like doing chord scale matching. So often when they're trying to use them over a chord progression or a chord, they're not emphasizing the, the right notes. They don't make good matches. And if you're playing a G chord and you're going to play a G scale, there's going to be certain notes in a G scale that sound complementary to the G chord, and there are going to be other notes that add different levels of tension. And you want tension. Tension and release is such a big component of music, right? I think you don't have a great release unless you have some tension. But it's a fine art of how to use those spices of tension. And a lot of guitar players end up using most mostly tension, I would say, and, and they don't they don't have a good grasp of how to resolve it. I feel like this is this is um I don't know this was a big issue for me when I was learning guitar because I did the same thing I was mostly self taught until later years I read some books but I don't know I just didn't really have any mentors around me and I didn't really make the connection I had learned my modes I had learned my scales uh, and I I didn't it took me years to know how to use them I actually learned how to use arpeggios before I learned how to use scales and I learned scales first so how I feel to approach this is. As you're learning scales, you need to be learning the notes on the guitar neck. And you should be focusing on what the notes are in the scale. Don't just look at them as fret numbers and five, six, seven, or three notes on a string. Or Don't get locked into a physical pattern of playing them. Get locked into the knowledge of what each of those pitches mean. There was a game I played. What was it called? Was it called Match or... Uh, When I was younger, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but where you lay out all the cards face down, and then you'd flip one over, and you have memory, maybe it was called memory, and you'd have to find the other card that looks like it, and, and, uh, and sometimes you'd flip over the wrong card, it wouldn't match, so you'd have to turn it back over, and the idea was like, you remember as you go through all the deck, and you remember where the positions were of the cards that matched. So scales and and chords and and knowing the notes on the neck are are a lot like this, right? So if I'm thinking of a G chord, I'm thinking of all the G scales that can match that G chord. I'm thinking of where all those notes are on the neck, where I can play them. Uh, And I'm also thinking in that G scale, what are the notes that are the most consonant, or the most release with the chord? So... I don't just want to end on any note in the G scale. I want to pick one that is like an end of a sentence, right? If we think about it, like, sentences don't just run on. Well, I guess sometimes they do when I'm talking, right? But in proper grammar, you would have periods or question marks or exclamation points at the end of sentences. I feel like tension and release is a lot like that in music. You will... Want to state a sentence? State a a subject. Is it a question? Is it a is it a statement? And then you're going to ask another question and and have punctuation. So it's like this repeating pattern of um of basically making sentences, which make paragraphs, which make a story, and having understanding of the tension and release is going to well, it's going to allow you to. Properly use punctuation with that, so in other words, not use a question mark when you want to use a period, Every time when you're practicing a scale, I'm trying to say the note out loud as I'm saying it, and I'm trying to make sure that I'm not locking into only one position and playing on the next. Sometimes I might take a different route. So this is where guitar is different than piano. A piano is probably the most logical instrument to learn music theory on so bassists and guitarists and mandolinists it's it's more of a struggle to um to see scales on our instruments because there's often a y in the road right a piano is very linear but a guitar the same exact middle C exists in multiple positions on the guitar neck. Sometimes it makes it difficult to decide what fingering we're going to use, what route we're going to use. It's like having four ways to get to work in the morning, and you're going to choose uh, different routes to get there on different days, maybe because there's a lot of traffic one day on one of the routes, or uh, there's, um, there's construction being done on another one of the routes. So we may change our direction of where we're traveling. And this is why it's really good to know the notes on the fretboard and to think of them more harmonically rather than just um, uh, fretboard positions. Because we're going to need to make a detour sometimes, because of where we're going next. And that was something that I lacked learning when I, I started learning the guitar. The idea that scale boxes weren't fixed, that I might want to use different fingerings. Sometimes I, I, I would see multiple fingerings for the same scale, and I would... After I had learned one, like, oh, I just did that wrong. Like, why did why did I learn it this way? It's not that way at all, you know. It took me some time to realize that it's not that one is right or wrong. That question is really answered by where you're going next and where you're coming from. So, more so than with with piano, guitar, and and bass, is is especially that way. So, you have to be a little open-minded to changing your box and positioning to play a scale. So I would encourage anybody that's playing guitar, bass, piano, I would encourage anybody that plays guitar, bass, piano, oboe, any harmonic instrument to spend some time learning the uh, harmonic functions of scales and how chords are built and the positions to which these notes exist on the instrument and the common tones that chords and scales will share right i think that will get us into a a, a good place to expand because eventually you might want to use more exotic scales you might want to use lydian dominant or diminished scales and having a good footing with how scales and chords match is going to be integral to developing those uh, scales and the usage of them One of my mentors, Douglas Gibson, who's a really skilled orchestrator and composer, gave me some really great advice when it came to composing about using whiteboards. Basically, a whiteboard, if you think about it, it's a place where you just write down your ideas and they're erasable, right? And I think when I started studying with Doug, I would, I don't know, I'd approach a composition a lot more that it was the ideas were fixed when I came up with them, and I'd try to just tack onto them. I, I wouldn't allow them to be so malleable, and sometimes this would lead me to get a little stuck, I think, because I felt a little rigid with the ideas, and I didn't even realize that, but he saw that, and really encouraged me to start working with the whiteboard concept. You could use paper, right? any, any way that you write your ideas down. I use Sibelius, which is notation software. I don't use a da, and I'll get to why uh, I'm not using a da in a few moments, but you can use paper, symbols, however it is that you can notate your ideas so that you understand them. I just happen to use traditional notation because I like it, and I also orchestrate for orchestral instruments, so that language is makes sense to me. It's more about documenting your ideas. And the idea of using a whiteboard was to write out your concepts. and try variations on them. What happens if you reverse the chords around? What happens if you play the chords faster? What happens if you play the chords slower? What happens if you transpose it at some point? It's just idea of, 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 Doug calls it getting to know your material, which means like really getting inside of it. It helps to be harmonically analytical about it, I find it to be. You don't have to be or feel that because you don't know music theory, you can't apply this process, because you can. It's just understanding harmony and stuff gives you another level of uh, control over the manipulation of a composition that you're working on, and the theory tends to come after the idea. Theory, secondary to the composition. By having this whiteboard... It's going to allow us to move things around and pair different parts together. So I'm not looking at a composition like an exact timeline, which is what I used to do. I would open up a DAW and just start recording and say, okay, the piece started here and I need to move forward. I really wouldn't like take a second to get to know it or think about how I can add other parts in or make the transitions smooth. Transitions were a spot that used to get me for a long time because they were often an afterthought. The whiteboard is the first stage of composition and after this we're going to move to a short score and final and then um, full score and then we're going to record it. So obviously there's a couple of more steps here which I will talk about more in, in future podcasts but just to get started with this whiteboard idea. So piece of paper, Sibelius, and Finale, whatever it is you're using, write out the initial chords, the lyrics, or whatever your song, the melody line you have. Think about the, the ways that you can twist that. What happens if you reverse the melody? happens if you reverse and we call that retrograde which happens if you retrograde the melody notes or just the melody rhythm you can do things like invert the melody there's a lot of different methods or techniques that we can use here to expand on a piece and this comes in particularly handy when we get through a piece and we just feel like we're out of steam because you're always feeling like you need to come up with new ideas often everything you need is in the initial idea it's how you manipulate that and how you can twist that throughout the song. So rarely do you need three or four radically different ideas for a composition. It's often one to two ideas that are just modified and changed. So the whiteboard is a great way to just throw down a bunch of different ways and not be precious about. The, the variations that you're creating, you might not use half of them. You might only use a couple of them. There might be occasions that you don't even use your original idea because the variations that you came up with ended up being better than the original idea. And that's okay. I think this is a period where you need to be non-judgmental over the composition. You shouldn't be too, I don't know, precious about what you're writing. I don't mean that that it doesn't have to be meaningful. It could be very meaningful and emotional. It's just, I think you don't need to I would make it be something it doesn't want to be. So let it go on its journey. Use this whiteboard to explore as much as you can in this whiteboard phase. Because the next phase, we're going to be taking bits and pieces from this whiteboard pa- uh, page and putting them together and thinking more about the form. So this isn't really a form stage as much as just like a scratch pad for a bunch of, as many different variations as you can come up with, and think about how far you can twist it from your your original idea. Each time you come up with a variation, push it further and further and further away. Even if you don't end up using these, something about that is going to stick in your head and inform you about your composition later on. I'm a big fan of manipulating knobs on effect pedals in real time, for instance, I'll often adjust the feedback knob and the mix knob on uh, analog physical delays as I'm playing to manipulate the performance. Now, the delay trick is a pretty common one. A lot of people are hip to turning the feedback up and letting it oscillate on tape delays for cool uh, ambient soundscapes or noisescapes. Uh, but what's less frequently talked about is using it on a reverb. So I use the mix knob on a reverb sometimes to manipulate certain notes in a phrase that I'm playing. And we'll listen to an example of me using a Mellotron with an Optigon sample. So the Optigon used to have um, these loopable loops say that, loopable loops, uh, basically where the Mellotron would only have a, a, a spool of tape in it, and once you held down the key long enough and the tape was done playing, it would stop. The Octagon was on a rotating disc. You would hold the key down and it would keep looping and looping whatever sound it was playing, and the Octagon had a bunch of loops on them, like rhythm section loops and vocal loops and guitar loops and orchestra loops. I sometimes use these in sort of like uh, eclectic compositions, They're fun to play with and just get like a really weird retro vibe. But I like to mess with them. And one of the things I like to do is run them through effects. In this example, I ran the Mellotron Optigon samples, uh, which is the Mellotron M4000D Mini, and I have the expansion cards, which has uh, more Optigon samples on it, or loops, and I ran that into a Lexicon LXP1, which is a half rack space uh, reverb unit. It's a digital reverb unit, late 80s, early 90s, fairly cheap on the market today. They sound great, they're not as popular as their more expensive siblings, but you can get some really awesome sounds out of them, and they definitely sound like they're from an era. And this is kind of an odd pairing, right? I'm taking, like, sounds that are from the 60s, the 50s, 60s, um, and I was running it into the, uh, like, an 80s reverb. But I like mix and matching that way. It's kind of fun. And what you hear in this is, I don't know, it, it creates, like, an emotional effect with the vocal, and it starts blurring some of the vocal notes together that aren't happening on the original loop. So, Uh, to my ears, it's not just about turning the reverb on, it's about uh, augmenting the actual performance that can be really fun. I use the Chase Bliss Audio CXM 1978 a lot for that. The LXB has a knob on it for mix that you can you can move by hand. The CXM has a fader on it for the mix control, so that is also very nice to automate in real time as you're playing an instrument. Uh, some pedals or reverb units aren't so easy to access the mix knob, so. To really use this in a real-time performance as opposed to using a send in a DAW, which you can do if you're using, say, like a Valhalla reverb, vintage verb, or one of the room reverbs. You could set up a send in your DAW. I'm using Luna, so I could set up a, a send, and I could do this while mixing if it's something you want to do in post. Sometimes with these automation effects, I like doing it in real time because it's affecting the performance aspect of it. So uh, it's worth experimenting with both. If you're a mixing engineer, you're probably gonna get, getting a performance that has already happened. But if you're a composer, and recording engineer, this is worthwhile investigating, playing with it in real time to see how you can manipulate and change the performance because it may change the way that the performer is is playing the part or the artist is singing the part depending on what instrument you use it on. It, it does psychologically affect the performer and can get different results so uh, that is one of the main reasons that I may choose to do it in real time versus post also to have access to the sound of very specific effects you know if I want to use the surfy bear Um, metal reverb or if i wanted to use the the demeter reverb or in this case the lxp1 so i do have a collection of outboard reverbs that have very specific flavor to them uh, which is another reason i may use them but i would encourage you to try this with guitar you know some pedals on guitar have an expression jack on them which should allow you you to check your manual and and uh, the model of what you, pedal you're using but you may be able to use an expression pedal to automate the mix knob on the reverb some of them will allow you to adjust whatever the expression pedal is tweaking so you'd be able to set your expression pedal to just adjust the mix knob so on certain notes as you're playing guitar for hands free operation you could use the pedal to do it which would also work for, um, for keyboards as well about melodic phrasing with drum fills. One thing I think that separates some of the really experienced professional session drummers from drummers that don't have as much experience is their phrasing with drum fills. One thing I've noticed about uh, more experienced drummers is they don't have as much ability to phrase their drum fills in a way that either adds nice counterpoint to the composition, or complements, or doubles, I would say, the melodic phrases that are happening. Meaning, sometimes it feels like drummers are just cutting and pasting drum fills in. That maybe the drum fills are conceived from technique, or things that they've learned, rather than matching. And I really feel like the best drummers I've worked with I've been fortunate to work with some really amazing drummers. But their, their fills are always so musical, and they're so musical because they're listening to the other instruments and what melodic phrases they're playing, and they're trying to decide when they want to highlight that, meaning hit some of the same rhythms as the other instruments are, or when they want to play in between or use a, a counterpoint, meaning like play a counterpart to it to have its own independence. So it's a careful balance choosing between those two. They're not exclusive. There are some drum fills where you may include both of those techniques. But listening to the music, understanding the musical phrasing, what's happening there, understanding what I call the lowest common denominator, meaning is the underlying rhythm of the whole song 16th notes? Is it 8th notes? Then deciding what the fastest rhythmic value a drummer can play to complement that. So, in other words, if it's an eighth note groove, playing drum fills that are filled with 64th notes aren't necessarily always going to be a good match. It doesn't mean they're not going to be because, of course, this is material dependent. But I'm just saying, I'm not just making that decision as a drummer based on, like, oh, I think I'm going to play this fancy drum fill I learned here that's based on triplets. I'm listening to the melody line. I'm listening to the bass part, I'm listening to the rhythm guitar player part. And this just doesn't go for drummers. I feel the same way about guitarists and bass players. In really pro and experienced bands will always be tuned into each other and complementing each other and, and adjusting to each other. They're not just in their own world playing. They're like when I'm playing guitar, uh, I'm listening to the hi-hat a lot on the drum kit. Often the hi-hat has some of the subdivisions or the most subdivisions of the groove so I can really hear there how much the groove is swinging or how straight it is that gives me a lot of information to lock in my rhythm guitar parts in the pocket the The bass guitar I'm really listening a lot to I'm listening to the hi-hat but I'm really locking a lot to the bass drum and snare drum and really feeling where they're sitting on the grid and, and, and so often everybody's locking in with the drummer and the drummer is like the focal or the center of the rhythmic groove of the band. So it is one place that everybody needs to meet and it's there. If the drummer is playing drum fills that are out of context, it's going to, I don't know, just make things feel separated, right? It's um, split, it's gonna feel split. So I think one thing to do as a drummer is to sing your drum fills. Don't just play fills because you know how to play them or you know you can play them. The reason we learn fills and we learn rudiments and uh, we spend time practicing fills is just to, to give ourselves the ability to be able to execute the things that we want to execute. Sing the fills you're going to play. Right? If you if you're playing things that you can't sing, then maybe you shouldn't be playing it in that context, right? But sing along to the music that is there. Think about how you might want to highlight rhythm notes on the the uh the the bass or the guitar where should you be playing together with somebody where should you be in between drum fills are a melodic element even though we think of them as being just a rhythmic element but they are very much a melodic element and you have tones right you have you have uh, tom-toms and snare drums and cymbals. and i i would say that there's there's an atonal like melody that can happen within them But there's still bright dark colors in them and they do have some sort of inner melody so i think um making sure that you're aware of how you're painting with those colors can really uh, heighten the song you know In this week's effects segment, I want to discuss the Effectrode Delta Trem. Now the Delta Trem is fully analog, full tube circuit tremolo which is really amazing. It runs at amp plate voltage, so it is actually reacting just like a real amplifier tremolo would. Now, this tremolo is designed after the tremolos of the 50s and early 60s. The what was 1963-64 when uh, Fender switched to the black panel models. They started using optical tremolo in their amps, and the opto tremolo has a little bit, a different sound to it. It's a little more rigid, so this isn't Designed to sound like that. The uh, full tone super trim was more designed after that model. This is really going for like the bias trim that was in the brown panel era fender. Amps, right? The uh, the deluxe, the Princeton, the lower wattage ones, the uh, higher wattage brown panel Fender amps, and the the um, white Tolex ones. They used a different sort of tremolo, which was almost a bit like a vibrato. We'll talk about that in another episode. I'm going to discuss more of this delta trem, bias trem, which is really cool because when the tremolo, the tube tremolo works, it effectively. Uh, adjust the uh, the the bias of the tube, and that's how we're getting that tube sound, and it's almost like that sagging sound, which is very musical, and I think. Well, it is less rigid than, than I would say the opto circuits are, and it is it's gentle and warm and uh, and buttery, which I really like. One of the things that's special about the road pedals and sets them apart from other pedals when it comes to the Delta Tram and the Tube Drive and their compression pedals, is that uh, they run at uh, plate voltage at three hundred volts. It's just like a vintage tube amp, so it's not really emulating vintage tube circuits. It is vintage tube circuits, so. Uh, that's a distinction to make with a lot of other tremolo pedals that, that are out there that are sort of um, emulating. These pedals and the Delta Trem is not an emulation. It's it's the real thing, and that's that's why it sounds so amazing. The Delta Trem also offers true stereo operation for ping pongs between left and right channels. Uh, the two tremolos can also be split for independent operation on the left and right as they uh, drift in and out of phase, which is really awesome. You can get kind of more experimental with the Delta Trem in ways that you couldn't with any other tube tremolo before, or you would have needed uh, two completely different amps, uh, set it to different tremolo settings and mic'd up at the same time in order to achieve some of this. Uh, I've done some things in the past where I've taken a synthesizer and I've uh, routed it into a fuzz pedal for channel one and run it in clean into channel two and have them set up two different tremolo settings. And so what you get is you get this sort of cool, disturbing sound that happens between alternating between a weird, mangled fuzz sound and uh, the clean synth sound with different settings. So it could be pretty creative. And when I did this, I, I, I did the panning hard left and right. So the, the panning was going... Uh, fairly fast between the left and right ears with these different sounds and weird settings and it was, it was really neat it was really great for like horror and tension cues so i really like that a lot and you can do that with the delta trem which is not uh, a common feature on tremolo pedals period it also has a tap tempo on it which is nice it's very helpful in an analog circuit to have that you don't find that very often there's a built-in boost in the delta trem if you turn the uh, depth knob all the way down you can just use the delta trim as a boost pedal meaning an always-on pedal and there's a an adjustment on the inside of the delta trim that lets you adjust how much uh, additional gain you want it to be or boost you want it to be so you could set it if you want it to be to just you need to gain or you could set it higher so it pushes the front end of your amp a little bit more and then just turn on the uh the uh turn up the depth knob if you want to hear the tremolo I do this sometimes on gigs it's really great when you're dealing with backline amps and the backline amps are a little lackluster because the the circuitry in the delta trem is so good that uh, having it in the signal chain all the time really acts as a band-aid for an amp that I'm not that excited about. So in those cases, then I will use the depth knob to engage or disengage the tremolo. I'm obviously not doing this in certain sections of songs. It's more in situations where this, the tremolo's on for the song or, or not on for the song or have a long break before it goes on and off. But it sounds great to push a tube amp a little harder as well. I often will go like a dB or two dBs above unity gain into an amp. I find that that sounds nice as a preamp just to, uh, to hit the front end of the amp just a little harder is often complimentary. So I have my end set up that way but you could set it for unity gain. I would not set it below unity gain personally. I don't find that sounds good going into guitar amps that way. But uh, at unity gain or above or you could set it pretty hot so it's really really pushing your amp into saturation. Because the Delta Trem and actually all the effectrode pedals run at a plate voltage and 300 volts, they do require their own wall wart. I have a... Uh, Effectrode atomic power supply because I have several Effectrode pedals and just really love the sound of them so much that uh, I I have their dedicated power supply to supply several at a time, but it does come with a, a wall wart and different um, adapters depending on what country you're in, so you can, no matter where you are you can plug it in. Uh, but you do have to use the, the wall to, for it because no other power supply is really going to give it the proper power it needs. But this is why it has, actually all the Effect Trio pedals have so much headroom and they have so much warmth uh, because they run at this voltage. So, and just know that it's a deal breaker for some. I've made ways to make it work. Uh, I have a small Gator pedal board and underneath it, I do have a Strymon Ohi power supply that powers most of my regular pedals. But then I do have a, a little extension cable or adapter where I could plug in the wall wart, which I have um, affixed to the the, uh, the bottom of the pedal board that just lives there. So anytime I want to use an Effektro pedal, I have the, uh, the wall wart there to be able to plug in. And it really doesn't add that much weight to the pedal board, And in my opinion, because I'm, again... I'm always toned forward. It's worth it because the way it elevates the sound so much. It's um, it's it's important for me to have it in my signal chain. Let's check out some examples of some various sources running through the Delta Trem. For this example, I'm going to use a Yamaha Reface CP on the Wurlitzer setting. Now I turned off all the onboard effects on it because it does have an onboard tremolo and reverb, which aren't horrible, but. I feel like by using the Delta Trem, which I'm then running into the Surfbear Bear metal spring reverb, it just elevates the sound of the CP even more. And it sounds really convincingly real, um, much better than I think it did. Not that it was horrible, but definitely elevated. Let's check it out on the neon setting, which is the closest to the sixties era Fender amps that we were talking about. Switch to fluid. You could hear it's much more subtle. Let's go to uh, filament now. we compare the filament to the neon let's listen you're gonna hear that the filament is a little more rounded off so it's just that got a, a gentler a wave shape on it which i think is just really musical and this is what really worked a lot about uh, the bias trim. it's just smoother the way that it deals with the tremolo effect whereas the optical or on here what he's calling the neon is uh, is just a little more aggressive and almost uh, more blunt the filament and the fluid are both a lot smoother and uh, the fluid being the most subtle of them Now I'm going to start turning the depth switch up, mix knob depth switch all the way up. That's fluid, let's check filament now, all the way up. Obviously with it all the way up, we're getting more of that choppy effect, but now let's put it on neon and see how choppy it is. So we get a pretty good choppy effect with the depth switch all the way up, the mix knob all the way up on all three of the settings. It's not quite as blunt as, say, uh, the full-tone Super Trem, which I feel can get a lot more of that uh, super-gated, choppy sound. I guess that's not really the intention. The early tremolos weren't really that choppy. I don't feel like that happened until later on, and so this is really designed after that bias trem, which is just silky smooth and buttery, which is what most other tremolo pedals can't do effectively and we have a lot of pedals that can get you that gated stutter effect if that's what you want that's not the hardest thing to get but to get the uh, the smooth tubey creamy sound of an authentic like 50s early 60s tube amp has been a lot harder to capture and I feel like that's really what's been captured here for the first example for electric guitars, I used a 1964 Guild Starfire 3. This is one of my favorite guitars, uh, and, and it's one of the best recording guitars I've, I've ever used. It has a, a Bigsby on it, an aluminum bridge, which is really interesting and I really feel like gives it part of its sound. Uh, and it has DeArmond Humbuckers on it, Now, it was the first year that they put and Humbuckers on these Starfires, and it's just a, a glorious sound. I ran that into an analog man ARDX20 analog delay that then to the Delta Trem and then the Delta Trem went into a Victoria 35115 which is a tweed pro. It's a tweed circuit with a 15-inch speaker. <laughs> Setting on the Effectro Delta tram sounds like the D'Armand tremolo, which was the first effect made for guitar. It was designed in the 1940s and it predates reverb and slapback or delay for guitars. So guitarists as early as the 1950s, Muddy Waters and started using it and it most famously was used by Bo Diddley on the track Bo Diddley. Now, that's uh, I think when a larger amount of the population of the world got associated with that effect, Though people have been hearing it before. I'm going to play a Telecaster equipped with Florence pickups in it and they're basically like 52 model pickups I'm gonna run that into the analog man ARDX 20 again and into the Delta Trem, and that's gonna go into a headstrong little king reverb amp but with no reverb on it this is basically a black panel era uh, Princeton with a 12 inch speaker <laughs> Listen to what the effectro Delta Trem sounds like with a Vox AC15 and a Dan Electro as a DC59. But I had the pickups rewound uh, from Gemini pickups. Rob is just really a whiz with pickups, and I don't know what goes on. He just has a touch and just knows how they're supposed to sound. Every pickup he works on for me or builds from scratch, he's done pickups for my Rickenbacker 360 12-string. There's an article on Anatomy of Guitar Tone that goes into great detail about why a lot of uh, modern Rickenbackers don't sound right and how to make them sound right. The Gemini pickups are a huge part of the solution to improving the sound of a modern Rickenbacker with the high-gain pickups. I also love his pickups that he built the Mercury 1s that are in my SG Custom. The lipstick pickups he rewound for the Dan Electro really just brought it to life a little more. I think the original pickups just sounded a little plasticky to my ears and a little thin. So the rewound period correct pickups just have a little more um, silk on the high end and uh, a little more warmth to them and depth. For the last guitar example, I'm going to use a Gibson Les Paul Standard. Now the guitars from 1990, uh, all the pickups have been gutted. Just the pickups that were coming in Gibsons at that time, all the electronics, honestly, had the wrong pots in it. It was just, it was not sounding great. I almost gave up on the guitar, and then I met. Uh, a pickup winder named uh, Peter Florence and I tried his humbuckers in a friend's guitar and I was like what is the deal with these pickups they sounded so good and I started thinking well maybe I just need to, p- to swap out the pickups I ended up swapping out the cap and I ended up swapping out the pots and the wiring uh, it's just the, the electronics I, I always feel like Gibson kind of slacks on that they charge a lot for their guitars and then you still have to end up changing some of the parts on them. I ended up changing up the stop tail piece, putting aluminum one on there. And I found that that improved the, the tone quality of it. So there are some modifications done to the Les Paul Standard. But the modifications have really just been done to make it sound like a 59 or 58, and it really does, actually. I've, I've played it against vintage Gibsons, and it sounds great. Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable. I, I, I used the Analog Man ARDX20 again. It was just part of my signal chain. I just liked the way it was sounding. It works really well with bright amps, because the analog delay uh, tames the high end a bit, so I was just using that a lot into the effectro Delta Tram, into a Marshall SV20H, which is a 20-watt Plexi, and I used it with Vintage 30s. So let's check this out. <laughs> mentioned about using the delta trem in true stereo mode and processing one synth differently uh, going to each side one being clean one going through a fuzz pedal and this is that example of me using a dave smith ob6 synth again one side is fuzz one side is clean true stereo tremolo So, this next example, I was still using the Dave Smith OB6 uh, analog synthesizer. I was also uh, using a Surfy Bare Metal Spring Reverb along with the Effectro Delta Trem. The Delta Trem, you can hear the fast vibrato that's happening, and there's a weird trashiness in the, 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 uh, the reverb that you'll hear which is the uh, surfy bear on its brightest setting and springs can sound really cool when they're being hit hard and it kinda gets a little chaotic which is what you're hearing in this. For this example, I used an ASM HydroSynth. Now, I use the HydroSynth because uh, it's a really cool, modern, digital synth. It, it, it makes sounds that you know, like nothing else it does. It's really unique. It is a bit digital sounding, but, I mean, that's what you would expect because it, that's the point. Uh, I have... analog modules that I trigger from the Hydrosynth, so as well as sometimes using the Hydrosynth for its sounds, I use it a lot to trigger my Dave Smith OB6 and the the Prophet 10 from Sequential Circuits uh, and a couple other uh, pieces of gear that I have in the studio, because the ASM Hydrosynth is uh, poly aftertouch which allows me to operate and get sounds like uh, this cs80 from yamaha which is probably my all-time favorite synth i'm really into the blade runner score and so uh, i use the profit and, and sometimes to try to emulate some of those sounds at least in the performance you know it doesn't sound the same but at least being able to have independent after touch control on different notes allows me to get some of those expressions in and the hydrosynth also has the ribbon on top so you can do the glisses and and um, and other you can assign the ribbon to other functions too, which is really nice. So I have the Hydrosynth acting in as much as it can, like the brains of a, of a CS80. So I ran the ASM Hydrosynth into the Delta Trem, and the Delta Trem. There's a couple of tracks on here, and the Delta Trem is set to different tremolo speeds depending on the part. So you'll hear uh, multiple uses of the Delta Trem. This example is going to demonstrate using some of the rhythm options on the delta trem to just, oh no, instead of just having the steady pulse of a tremolo, there are a couple of preset rhythms built into the, the delta trem that you can set it to uh, just to get a little bit of variety in your tremolo sound. So listen, you're going to hear uh, more of a syncopated pattern happening, and that is coming from the delta trem. In case you haven't tuned into to previous episodes of Anatomy of Tone, you probably don't know that I'm a huge fan of the Mellotron. It's one of my favorite instruments. I have a Mellotron M4000D Mini, and I use it tons in production because it's just such a vibey, cool sound. Uh, I wanted to pair it with the Deltatram, and I used the nylon string guitar patch on the Mellotron, instead of using a real nylon string guitar just because it sounded a little messed up and retro and vintage in a way that I just couldn't get, uh, even with processing with vintage style effects. So the Mellotron just was super vibey, so this is run through delay as well, but uh, the tremolo is last in the chain, so the reverb and delay that is on the Mellotron is running into the Delta trem. last keyboard example I'm using the Mellotron example again but it's on a celeste sound and I'm using the Mellotron and run into a spring reverb and I'm hitting the Delta trem pretty hard with signal so that it's saturating and if you listen to this example you're going to hear some overdrive and saturation that is happening from the Delta trem which is just one of the things that's magical about this pedal is that you really can get that that authentic uh, saturation happening you enjoyed that walkthrough of my favorite tremolo pedal the effectro delta trem i'd like to mention that all of the music you hear in this podcast has been composed recorded performed by me if you happen to be interested in learning more about composition or engineering or music theory or guitar playing bass playing drumming um, Synth the programming, send me a line. i love to teach and share because I'm always interested in gathering more information myself. So I am very much in the process of, um, of giving people the tools that they need to get the sounds out of their head that they, uh, they're hearing. So reach me at anatomyofguitartone.com and there's a contact page there and I will respond to you quickly. I'm going to end this podcast with a composition I wrote called Tentacle Difficulties. And this was inspired by an animated short about an octopus that was in a tank at a fish store and escapes there's quite a humorous uh, series of events that take place as the octopus is trying to escape through town and the fishmonger is chasing him. So if you think about that as this composition is playing, I think you should be able to imagine some of the scenarios that may happen with the octopus roaming around town. I'll see you for the next episode of Anatomy of Tone. Have a great week.